Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, speaking to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation to reframe the way we see things, the information we go on to seek, and the conversations we go on to have. We can all be part of the change process. Alva Smith is an academic, an activist, and a campaigner. She's mainly motivated by feminist, gender, LGBTQI equality, and wider social justice issues. She was the founding director of the Women's Education Resource and Research Centre in UCD. She was co-director of the Together for Yes campaign, co-founder of the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth, and she is current chair of Women's Aid. Now in her mid-70s, Alva is still very much doing her thing. She's been at the front of many of the protests over the National Maternity Hospital in recent weeks, because as you'll hear in the interview, bodily autonomy is essential to true liberation. She speaks so beautifully about the changes she has witnessed over the past 40 years, the scars they have left and the work still to do. She remains hopeful and warm and I know this conversation is one I will never forget. We owe so much to Alva Smith and other women like her. So Alva Smith, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Well, I am delighted to be here, Claire. Great podcast. You have been involved in some of the biggest changes that have taken place in this country. But when did all of this start for you? When do you think you became conscious of inequality and injustice and and begin to want to be a part of speaking out against it? Well, first of all, I, I often think that the changes of the past 35, 40, 45, 50 years are kind of like so many other women of my generation, all those changes are sort of written on our bodies and have left their mark, in some cases, of course, very painfully. Um, for me, I think I first became aware of inequality when I, you could say that I was somehow a, a free-thinking, when I became a free-thinking adult, which was a little bit later than it might happen, I think, for young for girls and young women nowadays, but it was when I was I suppose really in my early 20s that I began to realise that all was not uh, equal and fair and square uh, for women. And I got very angry. I was teaching, uh, lecturing in UCD in the Department of French and I was lecturing, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of young women every year sitting in front of me. And I was telling them all about men. And uh, I thought, gosh, there's something kind of wrong here because a lot of the writing I really love in French studies, which was the area I began my my working life in, um, it, it, these are it's what women have uh, have written that really interests me. And so I began to realise that something was wrong. And then I happened to uh, leave a marriage that I had been in very very briefly. I was married for six months and um, that ended. And I realised that I was very caught because we had no divorce. That was Ireland in the very early 1970s. That we'd no divorce and that that had 
repercussions for women, which were more severe. And at, very shortly afterwards, then a few years later, I uh, was in a relationship with someone else, a man, and decided to have a child. And of course, that caused uh, that caused hysteria in many milieu with people saying to me, but do you want to keep the child? And I'm saying, actually, you know, this is a choice I'm making. It's a decision. I, I, I want to have a baby. And I don't think I absolutely have to be formally married in order to have a baby. There's nothing about biology that dictates that. So all of these things were adding up, Claire. And the women's movement, of course, that in, in the 70s was developing uh, here in Ireland and also uh, abroad. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating and really wanted to become involved in the very those very early years when my marriage and when I got married and so on. I had actually been ill. I was in um, St. Patrick's for quite a long time with severe anorexia and clinical depression. But I was reading and it was like seeing seeing women's liberation and freedom unrolling somehow in front of my eyes, but from a distance or through a glass darkly. But I did realise that I needed to get to that place. I needed to get to that women's movement. I needed to be one of those women that was moving because otherwise I would sink in my life. And I think it was a very astute insight that I had at that time, that if I could hold on to a raft, I would be okay. And that raft was actually the women's liberation movement. And so much has changed since then. Obviously, we've had the divorce referendum. We've even reduced the the separation time. We've had same-sex marriage. We've Mm -hmm. repealed the Eighth Amendment. But do you still feel we have a way to go to have true equality? Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I, I do think that women's, if I'm just speaking about equality on, on a gender basis at the moment, you know, it, it is very clear that women's bodily and reproductive autonomy and independence and freedom of our lives is very, very important. But so too is our economic independence. And we're quite away from having the economic dependence. And I'm thinking right across the board, it's all very well for middle-class white women like myself who who, who kind of made it through the system because of privileges we brought with us into our working lives. But this is not the case right across the board, not by a long shot, for women who are in in various kinds of ways, maybe marginalised, invisibilised, and so on and so forth. So that economic independence is really important. And... Um, is, is a bedrock of women's freedom, as as is, of course, our security, our safety. And I think I, I don't need to spell out to you or to, to anybody that that jeopardy in which we live our lives as women is constantly there. That very, you know, that at the back of your mind thought that as I go down this street or as I turn the corner to my home or even very tragically in my home, I could encounter violence. I may not be 100% safe or my family may not be one. Living with that kind of, even if it's a low level anxiety, and that varies, I think, with your age and your uh, location, your situation, your social class as well, your ethnicity, that, that that's very tough. And it is not freedom. If you're constantly looking over your shoulder, that cannot be construed as freedom. So in terms of security, in terms of 
economy, if you like, in terms of our uh, bodily and sexual freedoms, of course, we have not achieved nirvana. Uh, I think we have dented the patriarchal system, but I definitely wouldn't see it as finished business, not at all. I mean, you, you, you tell that to any woman who is desperately trying to bring up her kids, perhaps with with the partner who who is violent, who is working in a part-time job with extremely difficult and low pay, with extremely difficult hours and low pay. You tell that to any woman living with a mobility disability or an intellectual disability. You look at look at the the way in which racism impacts on gender. All of those factors are mean that women that the lives of women, complex and varied and diverse as they are, are not, uh, we don't enjoy the same equality. Just think about representation in our parliaments across the world. And it can sorry, be so... I get kind of a bit carried away, but I think you shouldn't ask. Good. And I'm so glad that you do. And I think so many of us can get overwhelmed by all of these facts. So where did you begin when when you thought this is my purpose this is this is a calling for me this is my raft and I'm going to grab onto it where did you begin well you know I think it was it was obviously when I say it was my raft that was very selfish that was not that was egotistical there was no altruism in that at all this was oh my goodness as the movement has come along it's going to save me I can't swim so I've got to hold on to something and I think that was because as a, as a woman if you like metaphorically I didn't know how to swim in this patriarchal world um, I think it was really I mean there was absolutely no doubt that I began to have an understanding of um, the anorexia that I had through through reading in the early 70s and to see that this was certainly at that time much more an illness of womanhood than it was of, um, that, it, that it was a gendered illness. I think actually that has changed over the years and I think that's interesting and worth talking about another time. But for me at that time, I could see that it was this pressure on me to be a particular kind of woman that was making me feel, I can't do this, I can't be this, I'm not that perfect person, I can't be... I can't be married and have children and have a job and meet everybody's expectations. I'm just going to fail. I just can't do this. So there was a real sense of failure or or impossibility and of being pushed into a box that I I felt I was never really going to fit into. And, you know, I think for so many of us, that's, that's right, that temperamentally, we, we don't fit into those boxes. But that certainly for my generation of middle-class women in Ireland, we were not raised to ask questions about our future. We were raised to walk blindly towards and into that future, never questioning the fate and the destiny in front of us. But I think I was very lucky that that moment in my life came at the beginning of the women's movement and also that I was I was actually the first woman in my quite big extended young woman in my big extended family to go to university and that somehow or another I had understood that you could ask questions and you could say you could push against things and temperamentally I had a a foot that had been, you know, banging itself off the ground saying, no, I won't, no, I won't since I was born, I think. Um, So those things all came into play. 
And I began asking questions about that anorexia I had, then about getting married and needing to get unmarried, and eventually then realizing the difficulty that I ran into when I was having a child um, by a man who was not my husband. And that really, really brought me right up against the system. And I realized that I, I could never change that on my own and that this was definitely a time for me to uh, throw in my lot with feminists and the women's movement. And just because if it was happening to me, I figured, and I was absolutely right, that it was much worse for an awful lot of other women. Um, and I who, think the same pressures are still there on mm-hmm. women to be, as you say, perfect, to look a certain way, to act a certain way. Yes. Um, and to be the best at everything, to have great relationships, great careers, great families, if if that is is the way your your life works out or maps out or that you want that. And even if you don't want children, there's a judgment there. Um, and now I, I think many women feel there's an extra pressure now that we have this 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 liberation, yeah. but an inequality, because trying to juggle it all is almost impossible. Well, it's not liberation if 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 you can't actually do it. You know that's not freedom. That 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 is a terrible, terrible life sentence in a way when you're trying to hold everything together. And I think that that does. I think what you're saying is absolutely right, Claire. You know, it's so interesting that we have broken down many. We you know we we have pushed aside or completely removed. I'm speaking kind of very generally uh, the obstacles that face women in our freedoms, but that still has not been. Um, reconciled or evened out with all of the care expectations that there are of women, with those sexualized expectations that there are of women, and that we internalize ourselves. So um, I, I, I think, therefore, in many ways, and in interesting ways, the pressures are almost, or probably are, um, tougher for young women today than they even were in my day. In my day, our are big problem was somewhat different. You couldn't talk about anything and you didn't have the language. So I do think that what my generation of feminists have done is to provide a kind of framework and a language, or at least the beginnings of a language, to talk about our experiences and the ways in which we are boxed, limited, restricted, and to kick against that framework. But at the same time, the world is a canny place and patriarchy is especially cunning in my mind. Of course, it's completely, it's constantly evolving, not least because of technological advances, so-called advances, which become that feeder mechanism for maintaining pressure on women. And I didn't have to deal with that. What I did was done more or less you know, sort of voce or behind closed doors or very, fairly quietly at the beginning. We had to get out on the streets to make our point. Whereas now you lift your head one millimetre above the parapet and it's all over social media. So the, the, the stakes in a way are the same, but, but the mechanisms have changed and evolved. I, that's why I think it is incredibly important for women And I think this is true of any group that is oppressed or disadvantaged or marginalized. You can never, ever, ever take your eye off the central system, the powerful structure, the ones who have power. You have to constantly say we have gained this, but we also still have to go on working to maintain it, to keep it. 
Now, some people find that depressing. <laughs> I, You could get depressed uh, about that. You could get disheartened. There are moments when you feel very disheartened. On the other hand, you know, people are a bit disheartened maybe at the moment because they think, oh, we won. We didn't win on the National Maternity Hospital. Well, first of all, it's never all over until the singing has stopped. I would always say that to people. And the singing has not stopped on this. But at the same time, you know, we when you rattle a cage, and in this particular campaign, we did definitely, people have rattled, women have rattled a cage. That's important. That matters. That makes a difference. That's about breaking down and eroding a system which seeks to keep women in our place. So battles, even the battles which you don't entirely win, you may not entirely lose either. And those victories that look like total victories always come with a catch in the tail. Uh and you have to keep working to broaden those victories, to implement the consequences of those victories. You cannot take your eye off the system uh, for a moment. And I think to myself, goodness, who would have thought that, you know, that I would be saying this 50 years after the beginning of the women's movement? It is still work for my daughter to do and for my granddaughter uh, to be doing uh, and it is really, really, really important. And we have complicated it now. We understand it, that it's not enough to talk about women. We have to say which women, what circumstances, what are the other factors in those lives that completely undermine or mitigate against their ever at those particular people achieving equality. So we complicate things as we go. And I think that's healthy. And I think it's it's a good thing. I think I've probably kind of almost talked ourselves into something of of a a bit of a trough of despond. And I don't really mean to do that because I think that we have made and we are making an enormous difference. And can we talk about women's health then? Because you mentioned bodily autonomy being a very necessary pillar of true equality and liberation. and. Man, have women had it in this area and especially here in Ireland um, and regardless of of repealing the eighth, I, I, I've been watching with interest everything with the National Maternity Hospital and I feel like everybody's triggered. They're triggered thinking of the mother and baby homes. They're triggered thinking of what went on through the pandemic and the yes. inequalities there and the and and what women had to go through with with that and, and and as you say it constantly feels like women have to shout to feel mm-hmm. heard yes. and, and and here we are again and there's a lot of anger so does that feel like movement as opposed to despondent despondent yeah well i think despot yes no i think i think it is movement i think that there are we have levels of awareness and levels of outrage that certainly weren't there in sort of the majority when I was when I was young, when it was still, and I say very brave women when before I became involved, who were out there marching and raising their voices and shouting. But you are absolutely right. But I think there is now a wider, it's a much wider consciousness. Young women, girls, even my my granddaughter, you know, at the age of nine, is aware that you you have to that you have to stand up for yourself as a girl. You have to get out there and uh, and play the games and your football and your hockey and your whatever it is. You know, you have to get out there and you have to keep going. But there is a sense that 
why, why shouldn't I be doing this? I'm entitled to be doing this. And I think that's where the gain has come, that we're not afraid so much anymore. Because, of course, when we get out there and shout and roar and march and kick the doors down and say that we're going to camp outside Leicester House or uh, whatever it is, I think that's very important. And I think that at some level we really do uh, mean it. And we're we're not afraid to do that. But at the same time, we are aware that that is kicking against the still traditional, conventional view of what it means to be a woman, which is still at some level to be obedient and to be polite. Well, certainly to be polite, to be nice, to be kind. And I always say to myself, if I, you know, because I I would think I'm a pretty polite person on the whole. I get out there on the streets and hammer away at things, but I don't believe in, in interpersonal rudeness, if I could put it that way. But I do think to myself, there is still that pressure on us to be really nice and accommodating. And we get a bit punished. We do get punished when we're not. We're seen as, automatically seen as radical, outside the pale, um, troublemakers, a thorn in the flesh. And I and I don't think we are. I think, I think when we do stand up for ourselves, that's exactly what we're doing. That's not being not nice. That is about saying, I'm a human being, I have rights, and I want those to be respected. That is true of every social movement, whether it's anti-racism, whether it is disability movement, whether it's LGBTIQ, it's about saying, this is who I am, and I need and want to be respected. And I think we are prepared to do that. But um, it, it it's not easy. It's not always easy. Uh, to do it. I, I'm not sure if I've entirely answered that question there, Claire, but I, I, I think as women, we certainly, we certainly have to stand up first and almost, not first and foremost, because our security totally matters, our, our financial base really matters, our financial independence, our economic independence and so on. But I do think that having agency over your own body being in charge of your body, having the right to say what happens in terms of your health care and your reproductive care and so on. So, but I do think that is very, 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 very important to our own sense of ourselves as people. And I think you have answered it because sometimes when we think of change, we think of a, a start, a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really work that way. And as you said, even fighting against something, rattling a cage, it's all part of an end goal that many of us may never see. But we are now living with the changes that were started generations before. It's not something that 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 happens overnight, but it is difficult. I mean, I've certainly seen things. It's just come to my mind now. I I, I saw a, 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 one of the maternity hospitals a couple of years ago share a picture of a board meeting. And I think there was just one woman there. Exactly. And I, I, I want to retweet it and say, you know, I, I had the tweet in my mind. I'm not saying men can't have care for women in maternity, but surely there should be more women at this table. And I, and I bottled it, Alva. I said, I'm not inviting that drama into yes. my life. And I didn't do it. So what is it that pushes you over that and says, I don't care about the noise? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do it anyway. 
Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, like everybody else, I think like everybody I know, we all bottle it sooner or later at one point or another and say, look, but that's also, actually, I think you also have to say, sometimes, I mean, it's because we're cowardly. Sometimes it's because we have a genuine fear. And I think that that's true for very many women, that they really are afraid. They don't say something because their jobs will be on the line. Something may happen to their families. Um, their own personal safety may be jeopardized. Um, you know, there, there, there are very real material reasons why we restrain or restrict ourselves from time to time or even typically. And I think the more uh, privilege and advantage you have in your life, the better able you are to speak out. So I did, along with, I, I would say always, many, many other women, come to an understanding at some relatively early point that as a white woman living in Europe, as middle class, as at that time in my life, uh, who knows when things may happen, um, being able of mind and body and being well-educated, that I really did have a lot of protections, massive protections, that were not afforded to very many other people very and very many other women specifically. And that I, therefore, in a way, had a responsibility to use that place of privilege that I was in and I'm still in. You carry those privileges with you throughout your life. And no matter how much shouting and yelling, you may be a bit of a pariah and a bit of an outcast. And, you know, you don't get maybe you don't get some of the plum posts that are going or you don't get any of them and whatnot. But still, you are protected and that that gives you both a, a space, but also a responsibility. And I think in my own case, maybe because I was the eldest of a family of six, I, I, I had, and also an educator. I mean, that's been my career. Uh, 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 honestly, a kind of a sense of obligation that I must not keep quiet about certain things because they are too awful. They are too base. They are too cruel. All the cruelties that have been visited on women that history that has been so painfully revealed and exposed and the, the veils torn apart by such brave women like Catherine Corliss and like all of those women who've spoken out about the experiences in um, in mother and baby homes. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking of all the wonderful women I know who have been incredibly brave and who did not come with all of those privileges and who have nonetheless said, I feel an obligation, I feel a responsibility to speak out about these matters. And I certainly have that sense myself that, you know, when I when I came out as a lesbian, that was in and around the end of the 1980s. And several people said to me, oh, don't come out in UCD, that's not going to do you any good at all. And at that stage, I thought to myself, well, I'm already known as some kind of pro-choice feminist radical devil. So I can't see what additional harm it's going to do my career if, I, if I'm out as lesbian. But I didn't necessarily advise other women to be doing that. You do pay a price, actually, you do. But it's totally worth it, let me say, so for, for me. But that is with the privilege that I have. And what is the price you pay, do you think? Well, that's, I mean, everybody pays it differently. It's different for everybody. Um, you know, there have been parts of my life that have been honestly a bit tough uh, in, in family terms. I don't really talk about it that much, but I did pay a price. Um, there is the sense you have that you 
live your life with that you're not the kind of person who is going to be promoted to this or given that, that would give you more power um, to hopefully do a bit more shouting. Um, And so living with that sense that you are on the edge is both very exciting and invigorating and energizing, but it, it can also be quite tough. It can also be sometimes a bit painful. It, I mean, that that's an aspect of my own life that I still find quite difficult to talk about because I think I have been incredibly fortunate. I mean, the goddess has blessed me in so many ways that there is no way I can moan or whine about anything. But I am aware that there is there is some there is pain there. Um, starting off with that anorexia, those years in my twenties that were just lost, Claire. The, people say, "Oh, my twenties were wonderful," and I'm thinking, actually, my twenties were an absolute bloody nightmare. Um, and and you carry that memory, you carry that memory with you um, throughout your life. And then, as I say, in family terms, there were difficulties as well, which have now all been ironed out. Um, but you carry you carry those memories. Things people have said to you about being difficult or a thorn in the flesh, and you think, "No, I'm not difficult. I'm not." I like like other activists and campaigners. I believe that there is a correct and proper way to treat people with dignity and respect, and to ensure that possibility of equality. I, I, I mean, I, I cannot see at any level that that is offensive. I cannot, I still, I will never understand why people would ever see that as offensive. I think it is about standing up for um, human rights and equality and justice. And to achieve that, obviously, we need massive systemic change, which is why I've been involved in LGBTIQ and feminist and also socialist movements, because I think you can't do that on your own. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I'm not sure you can quantify this, but in general, who have been your biggest criticizers? Has it been men or has it been other women? Oh, I mean, without a doubt, I would say men. Without a doubt, but interestingly and increasingly, as I've got older and older, um, it's it's very rarely explicit. 
But there were, you know, there were often very interesting experiences uh, during, well, particularly actually during the repeal campaign and to some extent during the marriage equality campaign. When you're campaigning in that way at that level uh, around a referendum, there is a lot of lobbying. You're talking to politicians all the time. And if I had a euro for the number of times that a political person, a politician would say things to me like, oh, you're not as fierce as I thought. <laughs> I could be a wealthier woman than I am. So it is interesting that people harbour views of you that are dispelled in person when when you have a you know a, a conversation, a rational conversation with someone. Say, look, your decision is your decision, and your view and opinion are yours. But you know, I I, I would like to have a conversation with you about it and I would like you to be able to listen to my point of view but just as I have a point of view and want to be listened to I will listen to yours I won't necessarily agree with you but I will listen and I think that there is a sense particularly among men who see themselves as threatened by by feminists and you know good decent men should never feel threatened by, by feminists we're talking about a patriarchal system, which is very different. This is not an individual war. This is about tackling a system um, which is inimical and hostile to the interests of women and girls. It is not about individuals. And I, I think that's a very important point for me to bear in mind. And I often wish that um, <laughs> Those who, who feel I am hostile to them would revise their views, and they usually do. When you actually sit down and talk with people, you often discover that there, there are points of agreement. And that, I have to say, cheers me up no end. And, you know, that experience of two very big referendum campaigns was was very enlightening in that regard, that I think... Uh, a lot of people came to understand that you could sit down and talk about quite, you know, about different, you could start off with two different, you could have different starting points, but still have a reasoned, reasoned and rational conversation. And just as I am unlikely to shift my position, I recognize that others find it difficult to shift their position as well. Yeah. And that's why I think empathy is always so important. And sometimes I get caught in the in the quagmire of, of empathy and trying to see both sides. And where do you think we yes. <laughs> are headed when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexual orientation? At the moment, it, you know, it's all very important and everyone is is fighting to be recognised. But do you think we'll move to a point where none of that will matter the same? Or do we need to keep all of these labels at the at the forefront and, and have have acceptance of those? Well, I think, you know, you really do uh, put your finger on, on, on the key question at the moment. I mean, way, going way, way, way back when, long before it was out there in the public arena, I mean, part of the kinds of conversations I would have been involved in around gender were you know, saying things like that gender should be neither more nor less important than the colour of your hair, for example, and that the colour of your skin should never, ever uh, be, you know, a factor any more than your gender in determining your status, your place uh, in the world. 
um, your place in that power hierarchy. And of course, what we need to do is break down those hierarchies. So I do think that we have reached that point now uh, with gender when in many ways we're saying to ourselves, and, and there are many different answers to this question depending on who and what and how you are and how you identify yourself. But you know, but there is a question about what exactly does gender mean and what, what does it do? How does it help us in our human lives? And to what extent do we need it? Or to what extent should gender be a decisive factor in determining where you are located on uh, the social nexus or on the, the social hierarchy? And in many ways, we should be saying that gender should never be a defining determinant of your material status of your um, uh, your social status, your economic status, whatever. It should never be a determinant, no more than the having or not having uh, a, bit, a disability, no more than the colour of your skin, no more indeed than your age, which is something I feel quite strongly mm-hmm. about too, that we, we use so many um, social deter- so many factors in our human lives as social determinants to keep, and it's always about power. It's about keeping some people, most people in a box, while some other fewer people get to have more power. And I'm thinking that that's where we are with gender at the moment, that there is that huge turbulent questioning taking place. And some, some hold on desperately to to gender as being of capital importance and others are saying well actually maybe just hold on a moment let's actually rethink this whole business of gender and see what purpose it serves and I as I say I really don't have the answers I am not a theorist I am an activist and a campaigner primarily for all my 40 years of academic background Um, and I think that I think we have to look at those movements, if you like, of gender, the way in which gender is moving around the place at the moment, with great interest and not not fear, not alarm, but to say to ourselves, how fascinating that we have come to a point in our human social lives where we're saying, actually, maybe gender is not nearly as important as we thought it was. Uh, so I have, you know, I grew up, as a girl, a young woman, defining myself very clearly as a woman, a feminist, uh, and, and, and still feel that, you know, very strongly about myself. And then as lesbian, and I still do describe myself as a feminist, a woman, lesbian, and so on and so forth. But I have no, but I, I actually love hearing people saying, Things like I'm non-binary or I'm gender non-conforming, which is a bit of a mouthful. And I think maybe there are better words sometimes for these things. But I think, isn't that fascinating and isn't that interesting and isn't that brave of people to say, look, uh, I'm not going along with the, this gender binary anymore. I'm tired of the way in which it puts one side of the binary into more powerful positions and the other into more disadvantage. I think that's a really interesting, brave and very exciting thing for us to be saying at this point um, in in human evolution and, and human development. And I think you have to take a very long view of these things um, while at the same time working as hard as you possibly can to ensure that very brave people, that their rights are protected, that they are not punished 
for these brave moves that they make. And I've always thought that because that's been my own experience. I never wanted to be punished for being a feminist or being a lesbian or whatever. And I don't think anybody else should be punished for raising questions ever about the way in which this very unequal world works. I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to people who say it's not okay for everybody. On the contrary, things are very wrong, probably for the majority of people in the world. And you're right, I think it is very exciting. And even when I hear questions like, why don't we just have a kids closed apartment? Why is there boys on one side and girls on the other? And why do the boys have construction and dinosaurs and the girls have rainbows and and unicorns? Why are there not just kids clothes and you can pick whatever you like? And it's something so small that's actually so huge. But at a time when we're talking about non-binary and more acceptance, there still seems to be so much anger and, you know, what's the right thing to say and and the wrong thing to say. And often I come back to the analogy it's the butterfly again. It it was a teacher of one of my kids was telling me she got the butterfly net to let the children watch the butterfly form from caterpillar on. And it it was coming out of the chrysalis and she gathered them all around and it was all supposed to be so exciting, but it was actually, she said, quite horrific. It was quite bloody as he he or she, I don't know, came out here. I go to gender again and and was getting stuck. And as I say, there was blood and, and, and she was giving it as the analogy that transformation can be really difficult at times, but it doesn't mean it's going to be beautiful at the end. Do you think we're in the, 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 the bloody time as we are emerging from the chrysalis as it were? Well, you know, I, I was just thinking as you were speaking there that of course, I really admire and love the fact that people, uh, many people are choosing to describe themselves as they, them, and that we have come to a point where in many circles that we do notify people of what our pronouns are. And I would have to say that mine are still she, her. But, but I understand and I appreciate enormously people who take that risk of saying, well, actually, I'm not either of those things. I'm a they. And maybe the English language is letting us down and, and they can seem a bit disturbing at first. But when you think about it, it makes absolute sense that not labelling yourself is, is really very important. What we have to always avoid is the non-binary, the they, becoming in itself a kind of a label. And there is something about the human mind that wants to stick labels on everything. I mean, as, you know, good uh, academic, coming to academic life in the 70s, I grew up with the Dewey system of cataloguing in libraries that everything had to have a number in a particular place. And in a way, I often think that my own life has been saying, no, I don't like that place. I won't stay in that place. I don't want places at all. I just want to be out there as a free agent in the world. Stop putting me in a box. Stop putting me in the Dewey catalogue. I don't fit there anymore. And I think that's what's happening around gender now. And I feel personally that if I were, you know, if I were 18, 19, 20 at the moment, I could be making very different kinds of decisions than the ones that I more or less fell into rather than made as decisions when I was in my 20s and 30s all those years ago. And I am now in my mid-70s. So, I mean, we are talking about really a long time ago, seriously, a long time ago. And I think that that is an exciting world, but it is also an anxious one. It is also a, a very nervy, nervous world because when, when, whenever we take, we know in our own lives, when you take something that you have 
thought of always as very stable. When you remove that stability in your life, you're left wondering, will anything ever come in its place? How will I stand up straight? Where is the ground I need to stand on? And I think that that's where we are in so many ways, uh, certainly when it comes to gender. Also, though, about much more about other things like um, if, you, if you think about religion and you think about Catholicism in this country, I mean, we have destabilized and repositioned, shifted the role of Catholicism in Irish social and political life massively over the over those decades of my life. And that leaves people feeling unsure and uncomfortable. If you think about gender in that kind of way, it is inevitable that people, all of us, will feel at times very nervous and anxious and not quite know what direction to go in for the future. Um, but I think fundamentally we are right to destabilize and to seek to reposition and really put out onto the sidelines any institution or social structure that puts us into confinement, that puts us into some kind of uh, incarceration in our lives. I think, I think we are right to question that and ultimately to seek to sideline it. Um, and who holds the power? What are we pushing against mainly, Alva? Is it capitalism? Is it social structures? Is it all of that? Well, I mean, capitalism is itself, of course, a socioeconomic structures. But it, I think it goes back to something I was saying earlier, which is that, you know, certainly my um, my battle as, as, as a feminist has never been against individuals. It has always been against a system of power and control, which is operated by largely by men. Um, there can be women as allies within that system, but it is largely operated by men. Who, who benefit from that system. Uh, so I think you are, and similarly, when you look at um, the hugely massive high uh, race, um, uh, ratio of, of, of racism, um, if, even if we just look in Ireland, I mean, that is people like me as white people holding on to that power that we have in our lives simply because we were, we were born a particular ethnicity and and as white. So I think you can you can always point to those who benefit most in particular uh, structures. I actually think that uh, capitalism is of course completely iniquitous because it ensures that wealth is concentrated in the hands of relatively few incredibly powerful people and that whatever we do in our um in our, in our contemporary world Money is always at the base of it. It is always that basis of power. It is connected, just as it has been with the National Maternity Hospital struggle. You know, just just there, very, very, very recently, I heard someone say, it was somebody very well known who would not be an ally of mine, that there's nothing very much public about this hospital um, about this hospital, except the money that's being put into it to build it. And I thought that is so true. That is so very true that you trace something and you discover that the power base is with the money and that the money and the power tends on the whole to be held by, um, to be held by men. So you are looking at, and they are white men and they are generally based in the so-called post-industrial world, although 
you know, exactly what the world is in industrial terms post-COVID is very hard to say at the moment. But, you know, you're looking at interlocking systems, which is why the ways in which we talk about intersectionalities now in our social movements is very key and is, you know, a very key and, and very crucial leap forward that has now been thought through in a much more coherent way than when I was a young feminist. We we did think about it, but not in this kind of coherent, reflective way, that these are interlocking systems that you are constantly seeking to, to unravel. So, you know, when I say I am a feminist activist, that doesn't mean that I am not also anti-racist, that I'm not also anti-capitalist. I am those things because I see those systems as interlocking. Uh, but my, you know, my, my human mind is a bit limited and I can't, I can't hold everything in it at once. But that fundamental understanding that we're looking at complex interlocking systems is really important, I think. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm being too abstract there and I don't mean to be. Um, but you often cannot take on every, every, complexity in every struggle. Sometimes you have to focus on one particular aspect of it so that you achieve some kind of result that has meaning in people's lives. I don't believe in campaigning unless you're campaigning for a particular result that is going to make a particular difference to particular lives. And I think we, as you say, it starts with asking the questions. And I think any woman that heard the term clinically appropriate thought, hang on, I want more than that. Major red flag. <laughs> yeah, huge, huge, huge red flag. Alva, can I ask you, how do you protect your own energy? How do you set boundaries um, for yourself to, to to protect your energy and not get completely overwhelmed? Well, um, just right now, I have been out of action since the middle of February because I broke my foot. So it has given me... <laughs> been immobilized. Uh, it has given me some time to reflect and to realize that that's maybe something I should do, uh, but it's not something I'm particularly keen on doing because I actually, I find it, I, I find campaigning, I find thinking about um, the difficulties and working with other people to try to tackle some of them and, and, and victory is by no means a regular feature of my life, I can tell you, or of any activist life. But just feeling that these are things you have to keep working on, I find that exciting and energizing and invigorating. In fact, you know, being locked down during lockdown, because of course I was one of the, one of the cocooned, which I also think it's, I don't call it the cocooned. I think of it as I was one of the marooned during a lockdown and very angry about that because that was about, as our own president, the wonderful Michael D said, that was about infantilizing older people. Um, and I found that very, very difficult because it was about saying, you cannot go out there in the world and be a vigorous person. And similarly, just finding myself in a similar situation now for very different reasons, um, I think, oh, my God, I think what is worst for me personally is being marooned in my life and not allowed to get out there or not able to get out there and say, I want to speak my mind for what it's worth. And it's not always very well put together or anything. But, you know, I want to stand up and say, I don't think this is right. I think there is a better way. These are the kinds of solutions because you can't just be against something. You also have to think about 
What is it you want instead of what you are knocking? Um, and I think that's a, a mistake we can make sometimes in our campaigning, that we, we get out there and we're just against, whereas actually that vision of what it is or that goal you have of what needs to be in place is is pretty important. And for me, that gives me that sense of purpose and um, a, a kind of a justification in a way for what I do, that it, it's not going out there and, and just roaring and shouting. It is going out there with a particular purpose in mind. And I find that that is good for my energy. Whereas if you lock me into a room within about three days, I might have you know, 10 ideas for new campaigns, but I'm going to be champing at the bit and saying, let me out, please let me out. And in fact, interestingly, I I have a real neurosis about lifts and about being stuck in the middle of a row in a theatre, you know, or a cinema. I have to have an end seat and I have to have somebody come. It happened to me just last night. I had to have somebody come in a lift with me and she said, well, why are you so afraid of lifts? And I said, well, you could get locked in. It's so babyish. <laughs> but it's not me. when you've got so much to say and so much to do. You don't have time to be stuck in a lift. And I, I'm conscious that I contacted you only yesterday. And as you talked me through your schedule, I made you shoehorn this conversation in. But it sounds to me like what you do actually fuels you rather than yes, drains does. you. And can I ask you finally, you did mention being a grandmother. You have a grandson and a granddaughter. Is that right? Yes, I do. So what sort of hope do you have for their future? Oh, my goodness. I hope to the goddess that we can really tackle climate and environmental change like now, immediately. Otherwise, the world that is stretching out before my grandchildren and everybody's grandchildren is absolutely horrendous. And I have such fear and anxiety about that. I think that is so, so, so important. On the other hand, I see them as, you know, having possibilities that we didn't have, having a sense of human ingenuity and ingeniousness that that I think is really very important. And I think it behoves us to try to equip those children and young people growing up now to face problems that we haven't even begun in my generation to get our heads around and that we are responsible for creating. So I am hoping that they can grow up strong and well-resourced and well-respected and that they in turn will respect others. And I also have to say that while I have this nervousness and worry and anxiety for my grandchildren's future, they are also a tremendous sense of um, hope, but also sheer pleasure and joy. When I hear my six and a half year old grandson the other day saying to me on FaceTime, they live in London, saying, oh, granny, that's that was man-made. And he looked at me very sharply and he said, that was very sexist, granny, wasn't it? <laughs> I said, you know, you're so right. That was very sexy. He said, yes, I know. I know that now. And I thought, goodness me, that's got to be a major leap forward. Well done to his dad. Well done to his his mum. Well done to his teachers. Well done, everybody. Well done us, that that little chap. Now, it maybe doesn't stop him 
placing football above all else in the world at the present time. But it is interesting. And I just find them, I have to say that grandchildren, I am such an incredibly fortunate woman. They are an absolute joy, while at the same time, it strengthens me at this point in my life to say, I can't, I cannot ignore the terrible depredation and damage that we have done to the world and that we must, must, must fix with all possible speed and and urgency. Well, I've been quite moved by this conversation at many points, Alva. I so, so, so appreciate you giving me your time. And Alva, thank you so much for all you have done and continue to do. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Claire. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.